Welcome to another edition of Newport Beach in the Rearview Mirror. I'm Bill Abdel. Don't know much about history. Don't know much my In doing research for this podcast, I often stumble across weird, cool, interesting, mind-boggling little pieces of Newport Beach's past that have been, for the most part, lost to history. Individually, these Newport Nuggets, a term coined by my lovely wife, Leslie, aren't enough for a full episode, but I thought stringing three together would make for great listening. So here you go, the first episode featuring Newport Nuggets. And all of these are from the early 20th century. The first story is about Newport's first doctor and the Spanish flu pandemic, a subject, of course, that suddenly became timely again after more than 100 years. The second Newport nugget is about an orphanage that used Little Balboa Island as a summer camp for 30 years. And the third nugget explores a would-be religious colony in West Newport that never had a prayer. All right. Let's get to the first ever Newport Nugget, Newport's first doctor, and the Spanish flu pandemic. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad In 1917, Conrad Richter was a doctor on a German ship. When it docked in California, he and his wife walked off the boat and never looked back. They soon found themselves in Newport Beach, Balboa to be exact, and settled down for what they hoped would be a long retirement. But then, in 1918-1919, the Spanish flu pandemic hit Newport Beach hard. And this presented a huge problem. Newport, then a nine-year-old town with a whopping population of 800 in 90. Didn't have a practicing resident physician. So any doctor would have had to come from Santa Ana, which is about 11 miles away, or beyond. And those doctors were busy in their own town treating victims of the Spanish flu. So Dr. Richter came out of retirement to help those sick in Newport Beach. To paint a picture of him, Dr. Richter has been described as, quote, a fine-looking old man with a heavy mane of white hair, a dark face, a white mustache, and a posture wherein he always seemed to be leaning over you, looking you in the eye. Also, not surprisingly, he spoke with a very heavy German accent. Okay, back to the Spanish flu. It hit Newport with, quote-unquote, vicious force, according to one 1919 newspaper account, and pretty soon, and exhausted Dr. Richter, who made house calls in a Model T Ford, hurriedly took out an ad in the American Medical Journal seeking a young doctor to please come help him. Well, a physician named Gordon Grundy answered the call, which was kind of amazing when you consider what a tiny and isolated town Newport Beach was at the time. He was another foreigner fresh back from a stint as a physician in the British Army, where he rose to the rank of captain. Together, 
the doctors waged a successful fight against the deadly flu, saving all but one patient among the scores and scores they treated. And the story didn't end there. A grateful town elected Dr. Richter to the city council at the next election, and he eventually became mayor of the city. Not bad for a German doctor who simply wanted to retire in Newport. Dr. Grundy hung around too and opened offices in Newport Beach and Balboa. Here's the type of guy he was. When he first came to town, he was a bachelor, and he stayed in a guest room at the Newport Harbor Yacht Club. And when he got a call for his help at night, he climbed out the window of his room so he wouldn't disturb the staff living at the club. A few years later, the two doctors spearheaded a fundraising drive to build the city's first hospital. And in 1927, at the corner of 9th Street and Balboa Boulevard, the Richter Grundy Hospital opened. The brick building contained five beds, three treatment rooms, a delivery room, an operating room, consultation offices, and a kitchen where Dr. Grundy's wife, Nellie Grundy, cooked for the patients. An interesting side note, apparently Dr. Richter was a horrible businessman charging patients either little or nothing, and he often didn't collect from those who were charged. Sadly, he eventually died broke. Dr. Grundy also didn't seem to find time to charge many patients, an act that didn't go unnoticed by city leaders. They appointed him the city's chief health officer and gave him a $50 stipend each month, and they made him police surgeon, which I don't know how many surgeries he did on police officers, but I imagine none, and that earned him another $25 a month. Finally, a postscript, the Grundy family wasn't done with their service to Newport. Dr. Grundy's son, Bill, became a pillar of the community and founder of the Newport Beach Historical Society, where he served as president for 42 years. Bill's son, Gordy, also served as president of the Historical Society. His tenure went from 2009 to 2015. The second Newport Nugget lost to history. The summer camp for orphans on Little Balboa Island. Now, let me just admit this right now. This story isn't really lost to history. You can read all about it at the Balboa Island Museum. Awesome place. But this historical fact was lost to me until a visit there. So I'm guessing it's lost to many people. So for this episode, I'm qualifying it as lost to history. Here's how the camp started. In 1914, Balboa Island owner W.S. Collins donated 28 lots on Little Balboa Island to the Covina-based Masonic Home for Children, a home for orphans and children whose parents couldn't take care of them anymore. Why did he donate those lots? Maybe he had a soft spot for orphans, or maybe 
his Balboa Island development was about to go into bankruptcy, and it did a year later, by the way. And this would be a good PR move and a good use for the lots at a time that they were unsellable. Who knows? Either way, the camp, predictably, was called Camp Collins. W.S. Collins was, if anything, an amazing promoter. The camp attracted 52 kids the first year, and eventually the boy and girl campers numbered about 125. The vacant little Balboa Island was a perfect spot for a summer camp. The main activities included swimming, sailing, fishing, and hiking. It was a kid's dream. And for the locals listening now, the camp was located on the southwest corner of the little island, which was bordered by the Grand Canal and South Bayfront. A few years after its founding, the camp changed its name to Camp Tucker after a mason who donated $2,000, which apparently gave him naming rights. At its peak, Camp Tucker boasted 21 dormitory and smaller tents. Boys and girls were separated and slept on either end of the camp. It also had several permanent buildings, including a kitchen and mess hall and bathrooms and showers. Also, they paved the property with cement walkways and a massive lifeguard stand stood at the water's edge. Just think, you're a kid. You're basically alone. You lived in landlocked Covina, known for its scorching summer days. And you get to come to Balboa Island and play in the bay and the sand and the mudflats. In any circumstance, it's a kid's paradise. It must have been especially so for these kids. In 1944, after 30 life-changing summers for these kids, Camp Tucker folded its tents for the last time, the victims of encroaching development. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Newport Nugget number three. The religious colony that didn't have a prayer. Because in 1914, who in their right mind would want to live on the outskirts of Newport Beach, which was some outpost in the middle of nowhere, even part-time during the summer? In the early 1910s, the Episcopal Diocese of Los Angeles developed an ambitious plan to build a religious colony called Melrose Mesa on the bluffs of West Newport, somewhere in the vicinity of what's now Hogue Hospital. They snatched up 550 acres of ocean view land from the Bannings and planned 550 houses on the property. And these were envisioned as summer homes. And, and to ensure the moral character of each potential homeowner, Every purchase, which meant every buyer, would need to be approved by the church. By the way, if you're unfamiliar with the Episcopal Church, it could be termed Catholic Light. It has basically the same liturgy, but less than half the guilt. Yeah, I, I was raised Episcopalian, so that's fair game. Someone in the Episcopal Diocese of Los Angeles was a 
big dreamer. And I like to imagine they got their vision by traveling down to Balboa for the weekend and looking at the empty bluffs that surrounded the city and thinking, wouldn't it be great to build some sort of Episcopalian utopia on top of those bluffs? The blueprint for the religious compound included a church, college, summer school, auditorium, and other buildings, in addition to the 550 homes. A major selling point then, as now, was the water. Ads touted the fact that, just below the track, residents and visitors could row, canoe, motorboat, and sail on the still waters of both the river and bay. Now, the river, Santa Ana River, used to go right below those bluffs, so that's what they're talking about there. Prospective buyers were told that the development was only 500 feet from the ocean. And if you've been to Hoke Hospital or driven through West Newport, I think someone in the Episcopal Church could have used a refresher course on the Ninth Commandment. Which, if you're shaky on your uh, biblical knowledge, that commandment is about not bearing false witness. How high were the hopes for the colony? Well, the church enlisted an army of 50 salesmen to peddle the Melrose Mesa lots. By 1914, church officials had secured water and electricity from the city of Newport Beach, along with a permit to build a temporary bridge across the Santa Ana River to ferry building supplies to the site. But that same year, the first signs that Melrose Mesa might be in trouble popped up in the Los Angeles Times, the Santa Ana Register, and the Whittier News. The church took out ads basically offering a fire sale. They put 10 50-foot lots on the market for $500 apiece. Quote, these lots are offered at this low price in order to raise sufficient funds to make immediate improvements, read the ad. Lots will be listed for sale from $750 to $1,000 as soon as these few are sold. So they had a cash flow problem and they tried to sell lots at a discount to raise money. And by the way, if all 10 lots were sold, that would give the Episcopal Church only $5,000 in working capital. And the church boasted that it would make over $150,000 in improvements to create a heaven on earth atop the bluffs of Newport. But soon, the ads stopped. The development never got off the ground. What derailed this ambitious project? It was probably like anything else in real estate, location, location, location. Though only about 45 miles from Los Angeles, in 1914, the property was difficult to get to. Simply constructing Melrose Mesa would have been a logistical nightmare, as evidenced by the need to build a temporary bridge across the Santa Ana River. For potential buyers, it was also a problem. The coast highway through Newport Beach was still a decade off, and 
the Santa Ana River in general was difficult to impossible to cross during the winter months. This basically left only one option, taking a train to Santa Ana, hopping aboard the Santa Ana and Newport Railroad that ran down what's now Newport Boulevard, and getting off at a stop near the Melrose Mesa project, which I'm not sure there was a stop nearby, but even if there was, it's still going to be a bit of a hike to get to the colony. Melrose Mesa just wasn't convenient, and in a few decades, many decades, ahead of its time. So the idea for a large religious colony in Newport in 1914 ultimately didn't have a prayer, and Melrose Mesa was quietly lost to history. Thanks for getting into the podcast Time Machine with me and traveling back to the early 20th century where we took a look at three stories, three Newport Nuggets, lost to history. We'll see you next time.